Hello and welcome to Death of a Thousand Cuts, making you an awesome writer one cut at a time. My name is Tim Clare and this is a show about writing for writers that will help you write better, more and happier. Today I'm chatting to the author Nick Harkaway, author of such novels as The Gone Away World, Angel Maker, Tiger Man and most recently Nomon. We talk about just about everything under the sun. Uh, I think you know that. Fair warning. I I, I imagine Nick would resist uh, a characterization as a, a polymath, but he is certainly interested in loads and loads of things, and fascinated and just infectiously curious about the world, and um, his enthusiasm for how amazing things are and how often scary things are is. Um, comes through in this chat i think and i really really enjoyed talking to him it's actually so much in fact that it was quite a trying experience editing it just hearing i i I apologize in advance for the various awful noises that i make laughing at him because i sound a little bit like a kind of goblin lackey at points during our chat now what i feel you don't necessarily need to know before this but what I'd like to say anyway just so you do is that this isn't the first chat that we recorded um me and Nick the week before had recorded an interview that went on for two and a half hours and it was only after we'd recorded it that I realized all my recording equipment and backups had failed simultaneously so I had to go back to him kind of cap in hand and tell him what had happened after we had what I had considered a really great, interesting chat. I mean, the fact that it was it went on that long was part of it. You know, I didn't realise it had gone on that long. And the time just flew by. And he very was very, very cool about it and just said, oh, let's just record another one. It'll be even better. And we went and to re-record and we had a completely different chat. No, <laughs> we didn't repeat any of the stuff. He just, we just talked about completely new things. Um, so, you know, I just want to, I just want to pass on the information, whether it's useful to you or not, that Nick is not only furiously intelligent, but really cool and nice as well. And um, I just, I managed to sort of engineer a situation through my own incompetence where I got to chat to him for four hours of of tape time um, about everything from the nature of reality to, um, well, you're here. I don't need to say, I don't need to preempt it. I'm, I'm not going to do a big pitch for pre-ordering the Ice House on this episode. Um, next episode, I'll, I'll give some shout outs to... Uh, loads of people who've kind of stepped forward to say that they're pre-ordering it in anticipation of this is my second novel coming out on May the 2nd I'm making a uh, foolhardy but completely wholehearted now there's no point in for a penny in for a pound I'm 100% in for trying to sell 1,500 copies in hardback in the first week to get it onto the Sunday Times bestseller list Um, I'm going to go for it why not let's 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 have a try i'll put links in the show notes if you'd like to pre-order um then you can get yourself a beautiful hardback uh first edition it does look really cool and i, and I think content is pretty excellent it's certainly my best work um so if you liked the honors you will 
definitely, definitely like this. If you haven't read The Honours, you can go and pick up a copy of The Honours and then read this, the sequel, and I think you're going to really enjoy it. But I'm, you know, about five to 6,000 people listen to this podcast every week. So if a quarter of the listenership go and click one of those links and pre-order, then I'll be a best-selling author. I'm not relying on the podcast. I'm trying to take some other avenues. I'm going onto social media. I'm tapping on my friends. I'm looking at ways I can do ridiculous publicity stunts. I'll talk about this on another episode. I don't want to sort of eat into your time um, with Nick. But, um, you know, if you want to support me and the podcast, the absolute best way you can do that is just grab yourself a copy now. Go and click one of those links. I really appreciate it. If you like what I do, if you like the stuff I'm putting out, into the world and you'd like to continue to support that and help me do it that's the best way you can do it because that will change my life basically um and it is a very long shot but i'm going to go for it because the payoff would be amazing um the other thing i wanted to say is of course you can just um if you want to help me just keep the lights on there there is a coffee page that there's always a link for that that you can just uh, drop me a few quid to help with my hosting costs um but but in terms of stuff for you, if you want some help with your writing, don't forget I've got a entire free eight-week writing course in podcast form up on my website, timclepert.co.uk. Click through to that or just Google search Couch to ADK Writing Bootcamp. Ten minutes of writing a day, completely free. Uh, over 12,000 people, I think it is now, have tried it out. I get letters about it every week from people who are just finishing it or just starting and enjoying it seems to work with a lot of people um try the first couple of episodes see what you think the whole thing is free from beginning to end does there's no premium content in it so um if you feel like you could do with a little boost with your writing if you feel like you could just like something that will make writing fun for you again and subtly and slyly start teaching you skills but nothing too heavy that's the place to go also if you if you've done that course or if you just want something a little bit more lightweight um i've got every friday i've got my weekly writing workout there's a link for that in the show notes and on my website you can just click that put your email address in every friday i'll send you send you a brand new writing exercise people are letting me know about that all the time people seem to be really enjoying it it's just a way for me to share some exercises and just run a little free writing group once a week um you don't have to do it on the friday you can save them up if you want but each one is only requires 10 minutes of your time so it's just another way you get a little thing from me saying hey this week i want you to do this give it they're always focused they're not just a prompt they're not just a one line they're an explanation of what you're doing and what kind of skills we're trying to develop doing it um but it will never take you more than 10 minutes to do the writing thing and hopefully uh, that will help you out if you just want to have if you just want to have a win in your writing every week you want to just do something and look back and go i did that thing i know how that important that is and i think it's the way to bigger things so um that's available and there's links to that in the show notes that's it Oh, and the last thing I want to say is, like, if you enjoy hearing Nick today, which I, I can't imagine you won't, um, there's links to all his books in the show notes as well. I'd love you to click through and grab... Well, Nomon is a good place to start, but otherwise, you know, we talk a bit about the gone away world. Um, his books are definitely uh, exciting, and they are... Some of you will love them, some of you might bounce off them, but those of you who like them it will be like finding the thing that you didn't know you needed all your life. So 
you know, I'm a big fan and I'm a bit sycophantic in this interview and that will come through, but I think it's earned because he is an excellent and conscientious writer. So I'm, without further ado, I'll just, uh, let's get straight to it. This is me chatting to Nick Harkaway. So the weirdest thing, the one thing I wanted to sort of mention to start, and then we can go into various things and I want to ask you about research and I'm, you know, I'm afraid I'll sort of rehash a couple of things that I, I said, but also try to kind of inject it with at least the, an edge of spontaneity. But the weirdest sort of bit of synchronicity happened. So me and you, when we were talking, we were chatting about just sort of like inc- all this technology that in Noman, like becoming real. Yeah. Or and stuff that you'd extrapolated, but really were just interested in the implications of it more than this being like an actual exercise in future predicting that it had just it so literally I, I went downstairs from having the conversation and my wife and daughter were in and there were scientists from the University of East Anglia downstairs and my daughter had like an infrared like eyeline re- reader wired up there were like lasers around the room and they were doing they were like reading her tracking her visual tracking her sort of so much stuff that actually is kind of in the opening of the book with the kind of press conference first of all your like your living room is so much more interesting than my living room what happened there well i mean they were invite they were it was a solicited visit just kind of crash in through the <laughs> they didn't like repel <laughs> they were like no so my, my wife works as a press officer i'm um, doing science at the university of east anglia and um she signed my daughter up for i guess like the they're doing like developmental tr- not try clinical trial sounds like they're injecting her with a super drug i don't think that is part of it um they're looking at brain development in children basically and cognition and um children's ability to track things and their ability to problem solve and this was like one of the first things where they just play with some toys with Suki but they're getting her in they're going to do like a sleep cycle they're going to get her to sleep and put her into a um MRI machine um, and do it over three years. And and when you get to the end of this process and it turns out that she can fly, what, what what's going to happen there? Well, I I asked them. I said, if she if she's discovered to be sort of one of the twenty percent of the population who are neurological super responders, like is there a is there a secret program you're going to put her into? And the guy the guy said. <laughs> which I can only assume is a joke. Um, don't worry, most of her memories of her childhood will be uh, wiped, but she'll have a very good life with us. <laughs> I, it's one of those jokes, isn't it? You're like, that's hilarious. And now I think I might just not let you back into my <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I've read about like the Atom grads. I've read about the children gr- growing up in sort of Soviet programmes. I know, unfortunately, that's... So all, all of these things that we think of, it's, it's, you know, it's like watching, it's like watching, um, what's it called? Battle Royale. And then going, oh, 
isn't this a funny movie about ch- children in a f- fighting? And then you're like, oh no, child warfare is happening as we speak. That's why this is satire because it has a bite because this is r- real. When you actually, when you said that, uh, that that there'd been a sort of synchronous moment, I I um I thought you were going to say about this thing, this extraordinary thing where where they managed to encode. Uh, a digital virus into DNA so that when the DNA was scanned the machine oh my god I saw that that's incredible can you just can you like what that's almost all I know about it really they obviously they encoded a set a digital instruction set into a DNA strand and then you know then they when they scanned it the the computer then responded by running the command in the DNA I mean and it's interesting isn't it because as far as I understand it that's one of those things where if you have an unprotected input into a computer then that can happen to you you know if you're assuming that there's going to be you know somebody's going to try and uh, you know uh, get access to your to the sort of command uh, side of your system then obviously you put protections in place and you say actually no you can't enter into the address field you know um, show me your file directory give me full root access to your system and so on but because nobody had ever considered that dna reading technology would need to be protected against command inputs there is there is as it were no virus protection at that end of the machine so you can just go straight in so now of course there's this odd thing and someone on twitter immediately said i thought it was fascinating immediately said this is great because that means you can have um a kind of anti anti-hacking software encoded into your dna so that nobody can ever take advantage of your dna and the moment they try you know the, the computer that's sort of trying to scan you will be taken down you know health insurance companies oppressive governments whatever can't actually just pillage your data um and my immediate reaction was i, I i'm fairly confident that would be harder than it sounds but but also somebody else wrote back is that that takes paranoia to a new level i was like that is literally my job description <laughs> <laughs> that's exactly what i do um yeah i mean but i thought that was extraordinary and it it isn't something that happens in gnomon but it's akin it's very much akin to one of the things that's going on so i was sort of fascinated by that i let's i i want to i want to sort of i, I want to i it's so i mean the, the reason i just like had five like runs at a question there is because, well, I'll tell you my point of entry, actually. When I first read your work, I was really reminded of, and I realised like whenever you compare one writer to another writer, it's always like a, a slightly double-edged sword because it's also like somehow um, divesting them of some kind of individuality. And I don't think actually that's something that could you could ever be accused of, is, is, is of, of not writing entirely like yourself. But the 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 nearest analog um i had when i was reading your work was my 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 favorite author steve aylett who writes really kind of um interesting and but he describes his work as being sort of pointillist and there's a bit where he describes it as saying um every piece uh goes straight to the center so like it's instead of the structure being um linear um almost every part is kind of interlocked and you could although it's all connected and uh, it all relates to the other things you could almost start at any point in in the story and it will still go straight to the middle of the story if that makes any sense and that's how I feel when I'm reading yours is I feel like often there's lots of set pieces that that as well as pointing forward kind of are all hinting towards a kind of weird gooey 
centre. So I think that's really interesting. First of all, I think it's interesting because I think that maybe applies to the stuff he does now. I don't think it really applies to something like Bigger Hall back at the beginning. Which is quite, quite a sort of, is it like, uh, yeah, I mean, I suppose that's a fairly straight, more straightforward I was going to say a straightforward piece of satire. I mean, my gosh. Really like his stuff, and I enjoyed Bigot Hall, and I now can't remember the name of the book before that, which I loved. Uh, the Crime Studio, maybe? See, now, and I thought Crime Studio was fantastic. Um, and I, No, I mean, I'm, 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 uh, I'm very into his stuff, and he's excellent. Um, uh, so I, and it's interesting, actually. I mean, you're the first person who's brought that up. I can absolutely see... Um, that with some of my stuff, probably less with Nomon than with some of the other things, but there's definitely, um, you know, that he's definitely in the mix there. Um, uh, but I think, I mean, Nomon was my first attempt to do something that was consciously um, not not non-linear structurally, although in some ways it is. But you know, which was which was that consciously constructed and strange. I mean, I've obviously done strange things before but they were uh, in a very real sense they were quite simply put together um i mean i try to structure everything generally not not everything everything but i tend to lean on the detective story structure in my writing and it's i I do it so vaguely and so broadly that in a sense it becomes meaningless but it helps for me because with a detective story structure you you as the writer and then also later the reader they know exactly everybody knows exactly where they are because in a detective story you have a crime you have an investigation you have a solution and the process of going through that journey can go anywhere you know but once you know that that's the form you're confident that you, you know, that you will eventually arrive at a destination. And once you've given people that confidence, of course, they're then prepared to go anywhere with you. So if you start, you can go completely Douglas Adams and you can say you can start, you know, on a bridge in Putney and five seconds later, you can be on the far side of the universe. And then 20 minutes after that, you know, you can be at the beginning of the universe or you can be subatomic. It really doesn't matter as long as they have a sense of that progression and they trust you to take them to the end point where you're back on the bridge and, you've re- and you're revealing who the criminal is and, you know, well, and the justice or injustice or whatever it is, the process finally is done. People will go anywhere with you. So I really like that. And of course, it doesn't have to be as literal as that. It can actually be, you know, I have committed a great deep emotional sin. I have wounded someone I love. Here is the investigation into how I came to do that. And here is the resolution between us. And then you've written, you know, a a, a kind of self-exposing neo-real memoir. But it's still ultimately the same structure. And as long as you bid it high at the beginning and say, this is what I'm doing, and then you stick to it, people will never leave you. They'll never desert you and say, oh, God, I can't be doing with this. You know, I don't understand what's happening. And for me, because I obviously go all over the place, I really need to give you that security quite early on. I, Yeah, I mean, I don't want... I, so for anyone who hasn't read... No, I'm agreeing with you, and I'm processing it, and it's really interesting. I'm sorry, I hate when I like give a, like, a slightly havering answer and then just leave it open that I might think you've talked a load of nonsense. I agree with what you're saying. I'm sort of parsing it. Sort of, I, I mean, I guess the thing I was running it through um, before I'm before I sort of like jump back to make sure everyone's on the bus with talking a bit about what no one's about and how it relates to some of your earlier work. I just want to mention quickly how is with that broader idea of broad idea of detective story. Isn't every piece of fiction a detective story or not? Is that yeah? Well, I mean, well, probably. Um, I mean, because once you go that wide. 
you can parse it in a bunch of different ways and whatever. And yes, you can absolutely do that. But but for me, that's the easiest way of thinking about it. And I mean, I used to be a screenwriter. So um, for a while, you know, everything had to be three act structures and Joseph Campbell. And, you know, and you can still if you're screenwriting, you can still dish that out um, to, you know, a development executive and so on. And everybody knows what page you're on and so on. On the other hand, um, while I was doing it, there was a brief period where they were then terribly excited about seven segment, 22 beat structure. Now, I don't know if you know. No, I've never heard of that before. Exactly. I don't know. Wow. But, it, but, but actually, um, <laughs> you, you've, you know, if you think about that for a second, you realize that if it's got, you know, that it still ultimately is going to break down into three chunks. <laughs> it's just kind of like, actually, you know, or you can do five act structure and you can say we're doing this Shakespearean. You know, or or you can do. Um, John Clute has a, a structure of horror stories which goes um, uh, sighting, thickening, revel, aftermath, and you can do anything in that framing because you're saying, all right, here's the sighting, and that's the introduction of this thing, and then you know that it gets more and more turgid and threatening as as you begin to realise that, as it were, Amity is indeed um, you know besieged by a monstrous shark beneath the waves and on the shores of the beaches and so on, and and then the revel is obviously in the boat and you're seeing the shark come up out of the water and you know finally then it eats the oxygen cylinder and then later you're kind of like you know here's the finale here's the aftermath and whatever you can parse almost anything that way as well. These are filters that we use and structures that we refer to, um, but actually, you know, in the end. Um, that's because those are the narrative forms that we recognize and understand. They're not universal, incidentally. One of the things I find fascinating is if you read The Water Margin, the original stories of The Water Margin, um, people come and go, almost not arbitrarily, but they come and go without um, uh, their stories necessarily being entirely resolved in a given chunk. But the life of the location persists. People walk in, they are transformed, they, are, they become part of a story, and then they go again. And you're not, necess not necessarily ever going to get them back. But the village remains constant. And I find it's, I'm intrigued by that. I can't write like that. I, I mean, you know, never say never. But uh, um, <laughs> that isn't, that, that's not a way of writing that I would naturally gravitate towards. Um, so, I mean, yes, obviously, uh, in in that kind of broadness, anything can be a anything can be a detective story, or anything can be framed that way, and it doesn't really matter, in a sense, um, structurally what you're doing. It gives you, I suppose, if you say detective story, it gives you a sort of tonal sense of what's going on. If you say horror story, you're going to get a slightly different, or ghost story, you're going to get a slightly different thing. Where with a detective story, you're always asking questions, you're trying to uncover the truth. With something that's a bit more, you know, horrific, you're trying to get to grips with the badness that's happening and again you're uncovering but you're also you know you're experiencing and you're being you're running from or whatever um you know so you've got a slightly different mode but you could invert those you know you could say you could frame a detective story where the detective is being hunted at the same time as they're detecting you know there are plenty of those um you know so it's not i don't and, and, and you could take either of them and you could tell a romantic story in the same way you know um, you know, w was it a brooding, threatening romantic story? Was it a, an inquisitorial romantic story? Was it a kind of an uncovering of lost romance? Or, a, you know, so that would be your detective version. You know, there are always, you know, kind of it's tones and flavors and hints and hints and allegations, you know. So I, I think it's, um, yeah, absolutely. Ultimately, you can do anything. So, I mean, with Nomon as a book, I mean, let's let's sort of just lay it out. Um, 
here is a story about uh, a surveillance Britain and a Britain that's not just um, uh, accidentally a surveillance state, but premised on the idea of surveillance. So very all the way down into the social architecture, into society, surveillance is everywhere. I call you and I say, oh, you know, let's have a cup of coffee. And your um, phone or your computer immediately kind of flags up when you could go, looks at my meeting thing and sort of like, and lets the lets the cafe owner know that we'll be coming. And, you know, and the, these are the possible dates. And then we agree on a date and that goes, you know, and then the traffic computer knows that we'll be traveling. And so, you know, it's sort of balancing the ebb and flow of London's traffic so that, you know, everyone has a nice easy journey, not just us, but 8 million other people and so on and so on. And everything is like that. And if, you know, and then two days before your washing machine sends the um, data from from the most recent wash it's done out to the computer and the computer says oh hang on um that's not great tim's got a bit of a bug there he's he's gonna he's gonna develop norovirus later today and and so he's gonna miss that coffee we better tell nick and so you know and so you have all this going on around you and that's the level of the society and the consequences that is this extraordinary crime-free utopia or is it in this extraordinary surveillance nation then Something happens, which is impossible in a sense that a woman is brought in for an interrogation or an interview. Uh, she's a refusenik, somebody who chooses to live off the grid, who chooses to live sort of on barter and not be part of this, insofar as that's really still possible. And normally those kind of interrogations, they're sort of very medicalized and they're very healthy. They just they look directly into your mind and they see what's there. And then while they're there, they also fix any kind of incipient problems you're having with your brain. You know, you come out feeling healthier and happier. And there's no there's nothing sinister about it. People sometimes do it voluntarily as a kind of, you know, as a sort of way of calming themselves down and, and getting a sort of medicalized boost. So it, but she dies. And that cannot be allowed. So an investigator is assigned, a woman of enormous probity is assigned to find out what's gone wrong. And when she looks into this interrogation tape and she looks at the, the downloaded memories of this dead woman, she finds not this woman's life, but four others which cannot possibly be in there. And that then kicks off, how is this possible? And each of those individual stories has its own kind of narrative and so on. So that's where we are with the book. But again, Obviously, there's, a, there's an overt detective story framing, and then in each of those uh, sub-narratives, there's also a kind of a mystery going on, and, and gradually they all bind together to produce what I hope is a kind of satisfying conclusion. You know, I, 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 I imagine you're all wondering why I've called you here this evening, right? Yeah. Um, you know, and actually, I'm, I think one of the chapters even still has that heading because I'm, you know, I think I'm clever. Oh, yeah, that's, yeah. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, so, you know, and that's, but that is the kind of Hercule Poirot reveal. And and again, you know, you, although we're going to go all over the road, very, very early on, first page really is a declaration. This is a story about a death. And we will together unravel that death. Bear with me. The second page is really odd. And it was quite interesting. We had quite a wrangle when I was editing because it goes from this kind of very clear declaration of the. the... Yeah, you set you set up the world with like incredible, considering sort of all that you've told me and all the interesting things. Like as a writer, I would find it so hard to go. How do I slice this amazing cake? With and I, I think you you really get a focus on that. I mean, I just, I, I, I started 
you know, with that with that kind of police procedural. And then immediately the second page is kind of slightly eerie and strange because I wanted you to have, first of all, the detective story feeling and second of all, the warning. So you can pick up, you know, that this is going to get odd. So you can pick up the book in the bookshop and literally read the first page and then the second page and know what you're in for. And if you like the bid, that's great. And if you don't, then, you know, honestly, you're better off without me <laughs> because, you know, because it's going to drive you mad. Um, and I, th- I just think that's really important. And not just in terms of you being in the bookshop, but I think, I mean, people talk endlessly about first lines of books, but there is something absolutely amazing about the right first line. And the one that I love is, from, oh, I mean, I love lots, but one of the ones that I love is from the Friends of Eddie Coyle, um, the, the George V. Higgins, which is um, Jackie Brown at 26 with no expression on his face said that he could get some guns. Mm. And you're just right. You're just like, okay, I know what we're doing. You know, I'm just like, very clearly, this is the kind of story this is. And and every and from then on, you know exactly where you are. It's. Do you feel? Because that's re- It reminds me of when I started going up and doing the Edinburgh Fringe, and there was a whole thing because I was doing like stand-up poetry, and there was a whole thing in the poetry performance poetry community such as it is this weird little kind of brigadoon that kind of appears around the country and and we all know each other this bizarre village of people doing something that you really shouldn't be able to make a living from and there there's often a vexed debate about whether you mention when uh, when selling your show to try and get audiences in use the, whether you use the word poetry because people are going well people like it when they see it but sometimes they're put off by it and what we found i think what my the place I came to was kind of what you were saying that it was easier to get people in if you were slightly sort of dishonest and cloaked what it was about but then often you got just a larger audience of people who were not bought in and felt slightly swindled and actually in the end what worked was going this is what it is do you like it and actually Often when you've got such a range of stuff available, the show that says this show is going to be about my obsession with Sylvester McCoy in Doctor Who, that's that's what the show's about. That show is more likely to find a to, to sell out than one that goes, I'm, I don't really want to admit because that might a lot of people won't be interested in hearing about Sylvester McCoy. Like, but the people who like it needs to be able to find you, and if you hide what it's about, they can't find you. So you're you're basically setting out a kind of making a promise at the beginning of your book. I think I think with 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 books particularly, I and mean, especially with long books, you know, you make a promise at the beginning, and you have you you've got to give people an idea of where they're going in some way, and you've got you know here's my promise, this is what I'm going to do, and then you have to make good on that bargain. Um, I mean, it's interesting because obviously, I mean, I, I I make this kind of cheap gag about writing um, that that uh, it's like being a stand-up comic, but you get twelve months to be funny the first time. Yeah, you know, and there's an element of truth in that, but also in terms of practicality, um, there's there's truth in that in the sense that I. I mean, I don't know if this is still true, actually, but historically, um, one of the things about my books has been a kind of slightly atypical sales pattern where they sell. Um, and continue to sell across time. So very rarely do they kind of tick up high enough to go onto um, newspaper bestseller lists or something. But um, uh, at the same time, they sell month by month quite a large number as people kind of pass on to one another. They go, oh, I just read this. And you need to read it too, because I know you're going to like it, because I've read the book and I know who you are and you're going to like it. And so I get this weird thing where 
which is great where it's a kind of consistent month by month thing but you never get the kind of whoosh of, of wow you know you've gone into the bestseller list and it's amazing and we must all celebrate um but you know the sales are still very solid so that's you know that's very pleasing but it's also slightly odd and i think part of the reason for that is because the books declare themselves and some people go, oh, I'm not sure that's for me. And then their mates go, yeah, no, it really is. So that's like a month later, you know. And, and hmm. you know, so it's, it's, I mean, commercially, whatever, I'm sure it drives my editor absolutely insane. Um, but that, thank God, is not my central problem. Um, you know, but I just, and I, and I get, I mean, at the moment, for reasons, I, you know, which I assume are sort of slightly disturbing and social, I'm getting lots of email about my first book, um, The Gone Away World, which, you know, is about a world, as you might imagine, going away, falling apart, whatever. Um, and, um, and, it's, and it's about not being quite certain if you're an identity. And I'm slightly concerned about the fact that I'm getting, <laughs> I'm getting emails from people saying, I just discovered this book and it really speaks to me about the present day. I'm like, ah, no, it's an apocalypse novel. Don't like Please don't say it speaks to you about the present day, um, you know. So, I mean, but I think that's, uh, you know, to some extent, I think that's sort of relevant to what we're talking about. I just think it's kind of, it's what it is. Yeah. Can we can we just jump back into The Gone Away World brief, briefly, just because I, because it was your first, the, the first book of yours that I read, but my, the first one I'd read as well. And um, it the one, the one, the only part of it that I don't, that I'm so your books like they've got all, all of them have got like incredible synopses. Um, the um, uh, Angel Maker is the only only book I've heard that um, when a somebody read the synopsis out of it out on it, its synopsis out on um, writing excuses, the audience broke into spontaneous applause just from the synopsis there was like shock and uh, and and people were going wild for a, it was like the it was it was crazy it got an applause break for a synopsis i've never heard of anything like it um but the gone away world is do you want to just exp- could, would you mind depressing it partly because i don't know how to pronounce the name of the pipe um <laughs> which is what i'm which is what i'm tiptoeing round to be honest is i it's been it's been 12 years and i'm not sure i knew at the time however i if i get it wrong it doesn't matter um so um uh <laughs> so the gone away world was apart from anything else it was a, it was a riff on um the, the french noir movie about putting out an oil fire which was called salaire de la peur and um it was and it's um the wages of fear and that gets that's been remade a few times i think there's a there's a version with john wayne but so you've got in in the book you've got two guys in a truck um actually as it happens with a team um in the end and but the inception point with these two guys in the truck they've got to put out a fire that somehow if they don't put it out will somehow destroy the world and in in uh, and in this case what's happened is that there's been a war using a kind of weird um, sort of informational technology which strips the information out of the world and just leaves holes and all the matter just collapses which at the time everyone thought was frightfully clever like a kind of zero radiation you know kind of weapon and they were all very proud of themselves except as it turns out there is a kind of fallout and this version of fallout is this kind of um, I guess sort of psychologically active matter which when you come into contact with it if, if, if you're thinking about something too much it makes that thing real so they're effectively all living although i don't like putting it this way because it makes it sound sort of rather 70s they're all living in a world surrounded by their own dreams and nightmares 
Um, and so these guys, basically the, the pipe, which keeps the, the sort of central section of the world, like a, like a sort of equatorial kind of ring of reality keeps it stable um is on fire and they have to go and put out the fire otherwise obviously everything will be consumed in a world of dreams and nightmares um and then we immediately go back in time to before all this happened and not as in we travel back in time but as in the book flashes back for a kind of who these guys are how they grew up together what their real story is and all the rest of it and it, it it's a kind of mad thriller philosophical martial arts action flick of a book um and um so yeah and again as with um all of my books really it's not easy to synopsize um and people kind of go that sounds completely nuts you know perhaps when i'm on holiday and then you know Ooh. if i'm lucky somebody goes oh my god this is the most extraordinary thing that's ever happened to me and tells all their friends and you know i have another happy month i think like with your i think with your stuff like often when people connect with it they re like they really really like it because you have you commit to ideas and um i don't know like i don't does it make you feel slightly i mean i'm leading you down a path here but it must i i i suppose like i sometimes feel with stuff that i'm doing that is very me or is sort of like very difficult to explain or not doesn't fit into a obvious genre i sometimes it makes me feel a bit vulnerable because I feel like I it's actually it's actually going to a place that's quite personal and quite me just because it's quite idiosy idiosyncrasy is a kind of vulnerability right have you because like you're basically going and all your books I would say have the quality of being really really feeling really really fresh and original um is it scary taking that to an editor and going, um, this is what I'm doing? Uh... <laughs> well, I'm not scared of taking that to an editor because if, if I was pitching books um, to editors, I'd never, they'd never greenlight any of them. They'd never say yes to any of them. So I, so I take manuscripts um, and, and I just go, look, here's what I've done. And they look at me in abject horror. And particularly if you can imagine taking Nomon. Nomon is a long book. Um, and you take Nomon and it's like half a box of paper and you dump it on the editor's desk. And you're like, hey, look, I made you a book. And you mm. can just see him looking at it and going, just from looking at that, I know that the accounts department is going to be like, you want to make a book with how many pages? Are you mad? You know, I mean, fortunately, there are people like um, Neil Stevenson and George R. R. Martin out there um, who, who will routinely turn in books that have to be printed on Bible stock. So there's like a kind of hardcore, like icebreaker ship out in front of me, <laughs> kind of turning in books. Or like, was, what was that book? Was it The Kills that was like kind of a thousand pages long or something? Um, anyway, yeah. And you know, these people kind of, you know, they're out there ahead of me. And as long as I turn in something that's shorter than, you know, one of these really absurdly long amazing kind of things that someone's been recently very excited about i'm kind of okay but i do i mean i definitely my relationship with my editors is always kind of i think they sit there kind of they hear that there's a book about to land on their desk and the first thing they do is go and get obviously some some sort of iron struts to prop up the desk yeah. and, and but then also they sit there with I, I imagine a mixture of anticipation and dawning horror um so i mean there's that i don't i don't feel vulnerable giving them the book um, I feel vulnerable when the book comes out because I'm always terrified that people won't like it. I'm absolutely always, I'm, you know, and it, it, when you do something like Nomon, which is definitely pushing the envelope more than I had done before, um, I was absolutely terrified that people would just turn around and go, you're not as clever as you think you are. It's long. There's, you know, there's too much going on and I don't care. 
and you know and and that would have been really hard because i i really invested in that book and i love it um you know i'm already right i'm a novelist so my, i'm kind of like oh well i should have changed that there's a typo on page four and i should have changed that chapter and frankly that bit's a bit too long you know whatever but those are those conversations you can only have with yourself after the book is published you always think that you can have them like oh if i'd just been a bit more awake and a bit sharper with myself i could have done that before the book came out but actually you couldn't and what happens if you try to be that person is that you just don't publish a book for years and years and years and years you know you can always fiddle with a book forever but it's out there and you just kind of like you just sort of say that's you know the way that you can tell a book is finished is because your editor says nick the book is finished we have to publish it on in september <laughs> you know it's it's a really te- it's it's a really weird cycle that i don't know if you um go through this and i i just i'm I'm gonna put in a supplementary question in this just to make sure people are kind of able to follow along but that i don't know if you get this with a book but that you have like the you begin and because it's coming hot off the heels of another book where you've sort of seen the end state of that book there's like a feeling at the beginning of like oh why can't i why have i forgotten how to write when of course this is just what a first draft looks like and then as you start to get into sort of redrafting and stuff that often is quite can be it's, there's there's peaks and troughs where you don't know what you go need to do you know something's not working you don't know how to fix it you get edits back you don't know how to fix them and then as you get towards the end where you thought you'd actually feel best about it because you're you've done the most work and it's getting to that finished set state there's actually almost like a moment of it's almost a period of like mourning. It's like selling a house and moving out and suddenly looking around it and going, do you know what? I don't want to leave where I find myself delaying the very final bits because if I finished it, this, I don't get to play in this world anymore. It's, it's the book. I'll no longer be writing it. It will be gone. And I've, and it's something that I've wanted to get out of my life forever. Like when this is finished and, I'm sort of I have all of that except for that last bit. I, when I get to the end of a book, I'm desperate to get shot of it. Um, I, I, you know, and I'm I'm really eager. Usually, I've got the next one banging on the door of my brain anyway, which is actually something that's been happening to me for a while now because I've been working on something else. Um, and I've got this book which is just burning, uh, and I really want to get to it, and I can't yet. Um, but but um, I mean, the other thing definitely about that is 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 that sense of i think there's a very cyclical um emotional kind of thing built into writing books and you know and people put out those hilarious kind of little sort of things about kind of write 500 pages read it think it's genius read it again think it sucks hate yourself you know go back Mm. to bed get drunk write 500 you know uh, uh, and so on and so on and they go kind of as if it's a joke but i don't think it is a joke i think there actually ought to be you know, we should all get together and we should write the kind of family and user's guide to writers, um, because I think those processes, they absolutely affect how it, how easy it is to live with you and, you know, how much of a pain in the ass you are, you know, as an external thing, because you know, there's the peaks and troughs of writing a book relatively predictably. You get very excited at the beginning. Then in the middle, it just feels like it'll never end and you hate it and you want it to go away. Then you get excited again towards the end. And then there's a kind of sort of um, almost tachycardic thing where you love and hate it at the same time while you're editing it. Um, uh, and, um, you know, that's that's sort of 
that's all there. But then there's also kind of micro peaks of trust. Oh, I had a bad writing day, so I'm I'm quite ratty today. Oh, I had a great writing day, so I'm completely hyper. Oh, I've just written a scene that's all about something really exciting, so I'm very bouncy. Oh, I've just written a really depressing scene, you know, everybody dies, you know, and I'm, and I'm quite low and I'm thinking about mortality, you know, um, and all those things. And I think those really affect people's moods. And once you kind of say that out loud of course it does and actually it would be great if there was a chart and you could sort of move the pointer and say good morning darling today i will be manic possibly grumpy uh, and tomorrow i'm writing this and i'll be chirpy you know and everybody be like oh that's fine. that's great they can see the bit of the plot that you're moving towards and they can go oh we need a friday is going to be like a really tricky day i'll buy a lot of chocolate and it'll all be okay you know i i really do think that's sort of a thing i but it is it is sort of um it's also i think wonderful that you get that wrapped up into in you know and and it, and it kind of it affects you in that way and that's as it should be um but i mean yeah the moment of disengagement is always sort of terrifying and you know you fire it off into the distance and you just hope like hell that it kind of that it finds the same kind of home in somebody else's brain that it's had in yours for 18 months or whatever it is um and i think that's you know but I mean, that's the gig, isn't it? You know, it is absolutely. If you can't do that, then what you're going to end up with is a desk drawer full of about 30 books, you know, and that's completely awful because then you're stuck there kind of staring at them going, were any of these ever any good? Because you have you uh, you sort of mentioned, alluded to earlier, that um, in Gnomon there's like four, there's four narratives and then a kind of, but they're being looked at by in a kind of... Mm, not not meta narrative isn't quite right, but um, can you? <laughs> I don't. Um, when I say like the decision to do that, it, um, it makes it sound like a less organic process than it is. Of course, you sort of discover this, but I wonder if you could talk about those four and how you end up uh, doing that. Because to some people, that will be they're like, oh, of course you do. You follow things and you stick it as much stuff as you can. To other people, that will seem sort of an utterly alien decision and I wondered if you could just let us in inside a little bit. Well so I mean on the one hand this was the the most um kind of uh unplanned book I've ever done in the sense that it, it, it had to be because it was impossible to plan ahead because it was too complicated. And also because I got myself into this position because um I'd I'd had a kind of idle conversation um with William Gibson where he'd mentioned that he just kind of dove in and started writing and I was just like, oh goodness you know that's gosh I've always been a bit of a planner but I mean you know if that's how Gibson does yeah I was gonna say uh, holy shit like immediately I'd go home and start l- looking in the mirror and trying to copy whatever pose William Gibson I imagined had before he started writing you know and it's actually when you think about it it's an act of <laughs> insanity to mimic the to, to mimic the the approach of another writer and i wasn't even really mimicking it i was just kind of like oh well if it's possible and you can turn in these extraordinary tight narratives the way that he does then you know then i should really do that you know it'll be great for my career development like my my, my professional skill set and so on which turns out to be true you not not realizing that you were in fact a character in a um in a, in a morality tale uh, a, a warning to other writers uh, right yeah exactly i'm like mr bad example no so i um so basically there was that but then there was also this kind of quite i was uh, you know i had this notion of the book and I, and and for me books always begin with uh, an almost inexpressible conceptual thing like there's a kind of 
tennis, a shining tennis ball of light, which looks like the entrance to Utopia or, you know, this kind of this holy grail thing, which you can see perfectly clearly in the sky. And it's exactly like the XKCD cartoon that we were talking about at the beginning. The dream is perfectly clear, lucid, obvious and simple. And it's only when you come to try and write it down that you realize that all it is is an instinct. This is the thing that I think people say, you know, can the, can, the, can the writing of it ever match the dream? And you're like, well, no, because the dream by definition isn't written. And it's only in the encounter between language and cognition and this original inspiration that you actually get a book. They don't exist as perfect platonic forms waiting for you to kind of yank them haphazardly through the sort of interstices of the world into the real. They're, you make them from this kind of thing. So I had this blazingly obvious idea and I was like, I'm going to do this thing. It's going to be about surveillance and whatever. And then there's going to be a kind of mesh of reality underlying it. And I'm going to have a sequence of narratives and they'll be like this. And I had, and some of the narratives that I had originally didn't make it like I, for a while, I thought it would be great fun to do a narrative that was basically a kind of um, deliberately pulpy SF narrative, like a rocket ship Flash Gordon kind of a deal, um, which would be in there. And then I, another thing I had was a sort of um, a fallen angel in a prison made of light. And that one eventually sort of reverse evolved because I'd already had the kind of Nomon concept in my head. That one eventually just kind of fell into Nomon. Um, uh, and sort of there were a lot of kind of different iterations of how no one the, the actual title character should work and whatever but obviously the pulp science fiction thread just I just didn't like it I tried it out and it didn't work but somewhere on my hard drive there's like 20,000 words of, of Captain Zap um, you know and um, but so I had all these kind of I had this kind of crash notion but then I said like, okay now we start writing and I began to write and what we actually end up with is uh, Konstantin Kyriakos, who is a, a Greek banker in a financial crisis. When I started writing, there was only one, really. Now there's sort of been so many sequential ones, but, you know, it doesn't really matter which one. Um, then there's Athenaeus Carthaginensis, who is the jilted uh, former lover of uh, the man who we know as St. Augustine of Hippo, although, you know, she just knows him as Augustine. Um, uh, and that, incidentally, is a true story in the sense that um, Augustine had a lover um, while he was a student in Carthage and after, and she bore him a child. It's a very um, sort of biblical way of putting it, but they had a child together, uh, and who I think then died quite young. Um, and I and we know the name of the child as given as Adeodatus, um, but we don't know, as far as I know, we don't know her name at all. She just disappears out of history. And there's this whole sort of extraordinary moment where Monica, Augustine's mother, says, you know, actually, you need to marry a good Christian heiress, not this kind of ragged woman from Carthage and her disreputable ways. You're going to be a senior member of the clergy and so on. You can't possibly and so on. And so he says, all right, actually, you're absolutely right. We can't do this. And then he turns around and he says to Monica, actually, you know what? I'm sorry. I'm not marrying your, your young heiress. I'm actually just going to have a life of kind of celibate contemplation. And you can read the confessions as the kind of 13 book agonized breakup note to this woman who must have been absolutely livid. <laughs> and I, I should think she found them extremely unpersuasive as a sorry, because they're quite self-justifying and splainy, right? Um, yeah. You know, so anyway, I, I don't think that will have gone well at all. But she disappears into history. So I was like, OK, well, I'm going to give her a story. You know, she can she can tell me that she doesn't like it. 
or you know everybody else can tell me it's the wrong story or whatever but I, she's going to have a story um so i really enjoyed that um and uh then there's a, a pop artist um who's a, who's had to leave um Ethiopia in the 1970s when, um, as part of the revolution there, the fall of Haile Selassie and so on, um, and as part of the Ethiopian diaspora, and his granddaughter who's a, a games designer uh, and the head of a company, and her her company is making a game which is a kind of reality game which mimics the the world that we encounter at the beginning of the book, that's the, the overarching narrative, so there's always this ongoing question with all these stories about, you know, are all of them real, is one of them more real than the others, and so on, so there's a kind of, there's a tussle for the status of the real, um, and then finally there's Nomon, the title character, who's um, uh, this sort of bizarre sort of far future intelligence falling backwards through time on a mission of assassination um, uh, to kill all the other characters. So again, obviously, you know, Nomon is the only one of these characters who's aware of all the others. Um, uh, and so there's a whole kind of, you know, it, it was a very deliberately and self-consciously sort of echo Borges-like, Calvino-like thing. And there are lots of references to those writers in the text and so on as you go. They're all kind of buried. Um, and so you know, oh goodness, I mean, how do you take that decision? Um, I think possibly whilst drunk is the only thing I can think of. I mean, <laughs> you know, my my writing history is filled with um, moments of profound creative hubris um, and taking on things that, in retrospect, I look at Nomon now and I just think, you must have been out of your tree to think of taking on something like that. <laughs> So Nick, I've got to stop you there. I don't think that's true at all, and I'm not going to let I'm not going to let you get away with being with being so so quintessentially sort of English and squeamish about ambition. I'd say I'd say it's the opposite of hubris. Why waste the reader's time with anything less? I think it's a huge gift you give to your readers. I'm not going to let you get away with that. I think you you want you want to give people something that they haven't read before and make sure that their time when they pick up a book and open the first pages rewarded i think you do people a huge honor by caring about it by going for broke you know i really think you do obviously i mean obviously i agree otherwise i wouldn't do this stuff to myself but i but genuinely i mean i look at gone away world now and i think to take that on as a first book is extraordinary but i did that because i didn't know what i was doing um then i look at nomon and i think i i i look at it now and i think to myself I don't know if I will ever take on something that is that complex in that way again. Like I'll do other things that are different and those will be challenging and whatever. But I don't, you know, I'm daunted by the idea of trying to do that again because I know now how hard it is. I'm actually, obviously, with the experience of having done it, I'm much better at it now than I was when I started doing it. So in a sense, it would be easier. But I still look at it and think, gosh, that was an undertaking and you had no idea how difficult and in what ways it would be difficult that was going to be um and uh you know and, and i feel like this is basically what i do exactly in quest of what you're saying you know that i you know i don't want to just kind of give you something that's the same as last time again something that drives my editor mad right i mean editors love it when you produce kind of rolling sequence of things that are familiar to the audience in which they can sort of build on and so on um and people like nicola barker and you know uh, so on, to, to a lesser extent in a way me you know we do um the opposite we just go look here's something completely new and shiny do you like it and everyone goes Ah, okay. I guess I'm going to have to invest slightly more thought and energy and slightly more thought and time. And that's a commitment that I will make for you 
but you know some people are going to go yeah didn't like this one you know and that's commercially that's more difficult for everybody it just is but no i mean i completely agree with you but but i genuinely i'm not being just sort of um uh quintessentially kind of you know self-effacingly british about the whole yeah sorry that was a bit that was a bit of an overreaction i beg your pardon (laughs) it's not an overreaction it's a completely understandable reaction because it does sound like that and there's an element of that i mean inevitably because that's what i am but but um but i do look at it and i kind of think crikey that was madness and it's it's also fascinating because Bourguez, right, says about himself, you know, oh, I don't write long books because I'm lazy. He says it's actually just much easier to write little reviews and synopses of, of the stories I might have written in the long form if I could be asked. You know, and actually, and I was always like, yeah, yeah, you know, uh, that's just what kind of, this kind of thing poets say, isn't it? I mean, and actually, after I'd done a bit of this book and I was trying to kind of touch the edges of what he does in terms of the kind of density of the text and ideas and the construction and so on i was like no i hear you yeah it is quite mm. hard to retain that level of density and that kind of whatever and to keep the urgency going and it's it would be much easier in a kind of 10 15 page space than it is over the course of a full novel because you know those concealments and those little bits of poetic language and so on they're much harder to do if you're also driving an overarching narrative forward at what you hope is a sort of fairly relentless pace you know it's kind of they're they're two slightly conflicting things it was hard and it was it was challenging and interesting and whatever but knowing now what i know about how it works i would be daunted by trying to do that and i'm kind of like gosh it's a good thing you didn't know that then (laughs) there is that kind of i often Maybe this is just me. I'm admitting this for the first time, and this is going to sound weird. But I've often had the, done the thought experiment in my brain of like, if I was suddenly sort of transported back in time five years, um, but in my you know five years younger as well, um, but with all the knowledge I have now, um, could I write the book again? Because uh, it wouldn't exist, and the answer is almost it's almost always no. Like I. I couldn't face going through <laughs> that. Well, I, I had this delusion when I started Nomon that it would be really short, right? That was my, I had the, I had in mind one of those, I mean, obviously you don't go straight into Penguin Classics, but I had this in mind, one of those sort of silver-spined Penguin Classics things with the really iconic jacket designs. Some of those designs are so beautiful. And I just thought, and, you know, um, and I was like, oh, yeah, we'll have one of those. It'll be like that. It'll be quite slim. It'll be like kind of, one of those books that's sort of just thicker than a novella, like a, like the width of a thumb, you know, and you just go, oh, yeah, that's just that's that looks exactly like something I could read. Of course, no one is a doorstop of a book. Right. But so if I went back in time five years, the weird thing that might happen would be that I might actually know enough about how the book works to write it as the thin volume. Now, would that be better or worse? I don't know. I um the the, the comparison that. You, you hasn't been um made yet but that, that i wanted well i was just thinking about this idea of like writing multiple sort of parallel uh narratives and of course they do you know as the story we do learn how they sort of are are married and there's resonances but also the effect it, it reminded me of um the the, the master and margarita and this thing, and again, I'm just going to take me back to Steve Aylett, but he, he in his book, um, The Heart of the Original, he talks about uh, 
I just I just pulled it down from the shelf because it was making me think of this. But it says um, the book has two settings, Soviet Moscow during a visit by Satan and his carnivalesque attendants and Jerusalem at the time of Jesus's execution. Rebounding back and forth between these two atmospheres and pondering why they exist in the same book, the reader ends up tasting a space between the two, which is deeply strange and which could not be conveyed by any other means. Now, I was wondering whether by having these different narratives and I am asserting something to you as a douchebag and then inviting you to either agree or disagree. But I wonder whether that kind of shining tennis ball, which kind of is almost like a synesthetic concept, is almost like for you, uh, like uh, putting uh, ideology or an idea into a story is like trying to translate a cheese sandwich into a sound file. But I wondered whether having these parallel narratives, because there's these they do create these gaps in between them where they come together to create something that doesn't is not actually in the book and i wondered is that is that why is that the thing that is going on when you have this weirdness is that is pointing towards this this kind of like this void this space between the bits um i, I don't know that was that, that was my thinking really interesting now so uh maybe not, not consciously. Feel free to say exactly. no. No, no, if, no, if it's no, not. no, no. It's no. I'm genuinely. I'm just sort of doing this on the fly. So okay. So there's a, there's a discussion of this actually in the book in a sense because the the um uh there is a space in the book where there is a narrative going on which is created and the more you read it or the more you go into it the more it expands in front of you. It's, it's, it's spoken of as being fractal. Like, so you look at it, and like the Mandelbrot set, you, the, more, the, clo the more closely you look at it, the more it turns out oh, there is of it. And it's sort of, you generate it in front of yourself. And I always think that's how, um, if, you're, if you're creating a world in a book, that's how it is. You offer the reader um, little details which they latch onto, and consciously or unconsciously, usually the latter, they take those details and from them they deduce or they they paint for you the things that would accompany them in their experience so if you talk about someone's hands um and you talk about you know the the freckles on the back of the hand the ring the rub mark from a pen the quality of the nails whether they have those sort of vertical lines on them you know whether the knuckles are smooth whether the fingers are fat and so on immediately people start to see a hand and when they see the hand they also see the shirt cuff or the tattoo or the watch and from that they then suddenly infer what the rest of the person looks like you know and they and they know all kinds of things they know subconsciously they believe they know what the hand feels like when you touch it or what the person would smell of if you hugged them or whatever they you know because what they've done is kind of plant in a kind of a mishmash of their own sense impressions of the world and kind of give you all that for free so you've only given them the description of the hand but they've given you essentially a whole person or you know at the very least a sort of you know the beginnings of a physical understanding of that person and possibly even their backstory depending on you know if you say something I mean, if you talk about silversmith's hands i saw years ago a documentary um i think i can't remember where he was from one of the, one of those places where the government has decided to dismantle a country and rebuild it completely from scratch it might have been cambodia and this guy was saying he was a silversmith so when they came for all the people with um 
book learning and knowledge and whatever, they thought he was a manual worker because he was a silversmith and his hands were rough. So they didn't take him away. And so he then became his kind of group's default intellectual stroke political activist, whatever. Um, and so from this person's hands, you're making these assumptions. And from that story, you're already kind of building a world around the character and so on. And, you know, and I think you do that with everything. You describe a room. So it's got wood panels and you're immediately thinking about the wood panel rooms you've known. And that immediately gives you most people it's it's official buildings it's churches maybe it's country houses and so on so that gives you that and you get the smell of the wood polish you know and from there you fill in all the blanks so i think there's a kind of you're not necessarily indicating the blank space with these things so much as you are creating a framework of reality which from which people then deduce what's in the blank space and they actually create it for themselves and then of course they're invested in it and they believe it's all real and it has tangibility for them in a way that you could never do because after all a book if you if you think about the amount of information that's contained in a book however dense it is it's nothing like the information density of a few seconds of human existence Oh, wow. Wow. That's, 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 I, that's very, that's at once extremely deep and should have been obvious to me. And yet I feels like an incredible revelation. I, I think, but I, I'd say the one thing I'd say go further with, though, Nick, is that a lot of the things that you're creating because of the worlds you're doing, they are inviting us. They're creating things that, that do not exist and locations that cannot exist they're like i love this idea of like a single detail sort of you know like when some like grit falls in a lake and that forces the lake to spontaneously freeze um i love this idea that you can also use that to to kind of you're kind of like like we were talking about with hacking the dna you're taking these systems in our brains and you are tricking them into creating these sort of bizarre mashups of existing tropes in our heads to create whole worldscapes that don't and can't exist. And to me, that's something quite incredible um, that by, by, by splicing and mashing up these different stories and placing them alongside, um, there's a kind of dissonant harmony, if I can coin a, a meaninglessly oxymoronic phrase, but this... There's just this kind of... Uh, it's originality, right? You're bringing something into existence that didn't exist before. And I think that is a... It's a very weird, but I always feel very... Um, and I don't mean this damningly at all. Um, very awake when I'm reading your work. You know, like, because it is making my brain con conceive of stuff I've not seen before. Yeah, I mean, No More definitely is not... Um... It's not a book that lulls you in that, you know, in, in that way. You know, there, there are books that I read and, and listen to as audiobooks particularly that sort of actually they have a kind of wonderful sort of um, rich ebb and flow and you feel very calm as you begin to read and it's sort of, you know, and you don't have to, uh, you're spectating. You don't necessarily have to engage cognitively. You can just experience the book and it washes over you and it's beautiful. Um, and yes, there are intellectual challenges in those books, but at the same time, somehow you're not um, sort of being poked all the time to wake up and consider 
And I think Gnomon is definitely a book that kind of demands that you pay attention to things and kind of, you know, it, it's sort of, it's kind of nudging you and going, you know, hey, look, you know, this thing that you thought of that you consider all the time to be normal, it's actually constructed. And if you, if you hold it up in your fingers, you start to feel it kind of just break into tiny pieces like a piece of old fabric or something you know when you try to hold it up and look at the threads and it just turns into dust um and and i think i mean i also think that's a kind of oh now here's an authory thing to say right but I, think that, <laughs> I think that's a kind of universal experience at the moment I, I i'm i'm very big into this idea that you find in people like kind of um Zygmunt Bauman and so on and, and I, I got it originally from Anthony Giddens in the 90s this notion of sort of liquid modernity that you, you know that the basic things the basic ideas by which we locate ourselves in society are hard to find they're all problematized they sort of fade away so sort of notions of you know um hundred years ago you, you would probably grow up and die within two or three kilometers of or two or three miles of, of um where you were born um you you know you'd probably know the person you were going to marry from quite early on you know but maybe not but you know even so um your professional class your trade and so on all these things would be fit they would be sort of sorted out by who your family was and where you came from you know and all these markers of identity on the one hand obviously they were constrained but on the other they were also ways in which you could locate yourself without difficulty in the social matrix and you draw a line between sort of you know your gender your age your family your religion your state and so on and you can kind of you know you in this sort of crisscrossing the, the point where all those lines meet is you and it's very easy to know where you fit in you might hate that and then you can rebel against it but there's definitely you know an identity there which is you know reserved or created or um, uh, emergent for you and now many of those things are not true and people find it much harder to know who they automatically are and where they fit in and the theory is that they then turn to things like ethno-nationalism which give them an easy answer to those things um and you know and so i'm one of the things that i'm going to start writing about next i mean to the extent that i haven't already been writing about it with things with gnomon and so on um you know is what happens when people start to feel that way about quite fundamental things um i mean the things that they already feel that way about are, are fundamental already but i mean you know but um as we as we move forward technologically into a world where your genetics are malleable where ai can mimic your cognitive skills your lawyer's training maybe your creative writing skills you know how do you identify yourself when you can be duplicated simulated changed how do you know then if your body isn't fixed, if your mind is is kind of franchisable, who you are? So I've got two. I've got basically two questions to. Like I'm kind of want to want to finish up now. And thank you so much for um, all your your time. And I, and and not 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 because I want to shut down that line of inquiry at all. Just because I'm I, so, of... I don't know the answers to that yet. I have to write. Well, well, well I mean, I suppose I suppose my first my my. My only thing about uh, about that, I'm not like a no, Nick, you're you're wrong. I think it's worth. I suppose counterpoint would be. Well, I think like disillusionment is a is has positives and negatives, doesn't it? When we sort of like wait, it make it just makes me. I I just I suppose I'm always mindful of the fact that like E. M. Forster's The Machine Stops was published in like 1909 or something. Um, in which like the you know a machine is controlling all of humanity's um uh needs and wants and there's instant messaging and all sorts of things like that um 
and and it grinds to a halt and human beings have sort of forgotten and and have lost their sense derived their entire sense of identity from it i i wonder if this idea is as modern as we i still i certainly think we can see really fascinating rhymes and echoes of it um back through the years definitely i mean and the, the notion of of uh, future shock or information overload or time sickness each decade seems to have a new name for it and it's essentially the same thing but you you, you get it in Rousseau. you know memoirs of a solitary walker he's complaining about how everything moves too fast and children don't respect their elders and all the rest of it and and um you know you go back down the line i remember when i was when i was about 15 or something i went to a museum and there was a a clay tablet i swear to you a clay tablet which was translated as basically kids these days <laughs> uh, no, uh, no, I mean that that sense of I mean everybody thinks that their their period is the modern period I mean, because it is at that given moment, you know. And, and the Romans thought they were very modern and they were in the cut and thrust, and the Victorians thought the same thing. You know, and we all think that about ourselves. Um, there's no question about that. But nonetheless, I think that the there are some uh, erosions taking place now which were not possible until fairly recently because the technology just wasn't there to do it i mean the you know the the sort of the most cerebral of them is the sort of if you read kind of carlo Rovelli's books or you know these sort of extraordinary books explaining sort of particle physics to to the the uninformed which is me um you you know the carlo Rovelli's book is called um reality is not what it seems um and what you come to is the realization that it really isn't um, and there's this extraordinary, there are two things in that book, um, which I absolutely loved and which I thought were extraordinary. And they just absolutely kind of, they, my eyes just opened very, very wide and my brain went off in fireworks. And I just sat there and stared at the page for a while. The first one is about relativity. And it's very simple. If you have two astronauts and they're the only things in the universe, and they're looking at each other and one of them is turning in space. You can't possibly know which one of them is turning because the only way of telling is by reference to the other one who might be the one who's turning and that absolutely i was kind of like oh oh i knew about that but at the same time i didn't until now oh that, that my 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 brain has just slightly pretzeled um in, in response to that exactly and the, and then the second thing is the notion that at the subatomic level, it's possible that particles don't exist at all, except in the moment when they collide with each other or interact. It's not that they're not, it's not that we can't know where they are. And I think that's quite ha 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 fundamental, because um, we tend to think of the world as being a stable block. And then we think that processes act on that solidity. And processes are change and they're anomalous but actually it's entirely conceivable that literally everything we think of as stable is made up of things existing and ceasing to exist in between the moments of their interactions and you know and for me that changes doesn't exactly change everything but it is a perceptual shift that i find really important um this notion that just it might be that the fireworks displays all there is and there's nothing in between and I love that, but I think that potentially that's a really jarring idea. And obviously, particle physics, particle physics in 
sort of everyday life and going to the shops is not a factor, right? I mean, obviously, on the one hand, it controls everything, but on the other, it's not a factor. Um, but there are equivalent strangenesses coming in biology and in and societal everyday life, which I think people will find much more directly jarring. I mean, unless, you know, someone turns around with some extraordinary science fictional particle thing tomorrow and then everything changes and we'll all go, oh, well, Parkerway was barking up the wrong tree. Um, <laughs> you know, I, think, <laughs> I just, I feel like there are, you know, um, you have George Church, who's the, one of the sort of leading synthetic biologists and and um, synthetic biology being the making of organisms at a genetic level or the or the tampering with so that he's involved in the efforts to de-extinct certain creatures like the aurochs or the passenger pigeon or whatever um and he said a little while ago that the thing you have to understand is that the growth in this field is absolutely phenomenal it's not just a kind of upward line you know kind of zooming off into the into the distance it is actually um it's exponential so the change the pace of change is accelerating you know and that's not guaranteed to last forever it's not a fundamental universal law but you know the idea of something that where the change is getting faster and faster not just that you know the, the curve is very steep but that it's getting steeper so what you thought was the pace of change yesterday is half of the pace of change today and what you thought was that, you know, and so you get used to it today and you're still off the pace by 100% tomorrow. And that process is something that I think people find very difficult to take on board because it just seems, you know, you, you can't ever get used to it because your estimation is always linear, not exponential. And the, the way to, to sort of demonstrate that to yourself is to get a chessboard and put a single grain of rice on the first square of the chessboard and then two on the second, four on the third, eight, 16, and so on. And you won't get very far into the chessboard before you have to go to the supermarket, but you won't be able to get all the way across the chessboard because by the end of it, you need billions of grains. So my question, my, my, I'll, the, the, I've got two questions. One's about your craft and one is um, ruthlessly strip mining uh, your years of hard work um, for, for, to, to, to enrich ourselves. Um, so the question I want to ask, because that's that stuff that you're giving us and these like incredible kind of like, I guess, like kind of thought jungle gyms, I realise I've just infantilized the wonder of the universe. You know, that's actually exactly what they are. And, and it's also, it, it bears saying that all of this is architecture and framing. And in the midst of all this, I do all this stuff in the background, but the, the stories have to revolve around the characters. I mean, it has to be about the people. You know, all this is great. And it's, you know, and as you say, it's a jungle gym for the mind. It's absolutely what it is. And it's about, it's also about providing people with a frame um, for new situations they have not yet encountered so that when they do encounter them, they're not completely flattened by them. Like if you encounter a situation you've never met before, you've never considered, it's very hard to respond. If you've actually been thinking about it in another context, you go, oh yeah, all right, I'll just do this. So, which I think is like, I think that's a really important job for writers at the moment is to offer the frame for situations that haven't yet happened. Anyway, yes. So, so my, my question was going to be, um, you said you mentioned to me because I remember like last time we met, um, you were reading bits from uh, No Mom, but you were still kind of like it was you know you were still working on it. Um, you you said to me that uh, there were the, the writing of No Mom was was difficult sometimes, and actually you, you the phrasing you used to me was um, 
there were points where it almost destroyed me. Now, I just I what I wanted to ask is like kind of what do you you know, what do you what do you mean by that? Like how difficult was it? And I guess I'm kind of like but also how do you because I think this is helpful for people to hear, how did you get through the hardest parts of writing that book? You know, what what keeps you going? Because I hear a lot from people I get emails now, which is like wonderful. I get like emails every day from writers, but also I feel like I'm kind of plugged in to the world's sort of writing neuroses. I hear a lot of repeated things that writers are going through. And one thing that's common is writers hitting a wall and then simply stopping. And so, I, you know, I, I ask this to a lot of authors I have on the show, which is like when you got to this difficult point, you know, what how did you get over those humps? Because the way you describe it, it, it sounds like it was quite difficult. And like we've described earlier, it's not always clear with writers how how joking they're being about these things. So I just wondered if you could talk about that a bit. It was genuinely hard. And it was the first time when writing a book that I wasn't absolutely certain I was going to finish it. I mean, in the sense that I kind of knew that I could choose to carry on and that I would get to the end. I mean, that's the, that's the, the thing that happens to you when you've written a couple of books is you're kind of like, I can do this. I know I can. It's just a process, and you know. So there's that confidence, which is, I mean, you know, again, creative hubris. But you know, it's important. It's a really important thing to have, um, and it's just you, you just you put one foot in front of the other. But let's just kind of back away from that because that makes it sound very kind of trivial, and it's not. Um, so the first thing is what was happening. That was that the there is a multiplication of possibilities when you work with multiple stories. They affect each other. They knock on to each other. And the more of them you have, the explosion of possibilities is more pronounced. Um, and I was finding that really difficult. And I was effectively, initially, I was 3D printing in a way. I was kind of, I'd write a bit, and then I'd do the next bit, and then I'd go back and, and overlay that onto the bit before. And then I'd go and do the third bit, and I'd overlay that onto the two bits. And then the two bits would change, and that would change the third bit. And there was this endless process of recursion and repeat. It sounds like you're like replicating the, that kind of like uh, exponential curve of modernity, right? You were making it exponentially more complex yes yeah and so this first of all there's that there's a pure sort of iteration problem the second thing is that as you say this is a kind of jungle gym set of concepts some of them are hard and you cannot be troubled by my intellectual incapacity right i'm wrestling with these concepts myself i'm not like i'm not a physics person i'm i have undergraduate philosophy and social and political science i'm not like one of those guys who for whom mathematics or any of these things is easy and i but none of difficulty that i experience can make it through to you i have to be the filter so that it looks from your end as if this novel always knew where it was going was always um confidently and joyfully and breezily assured about it's you know whatever and just it all has to flow and feel completely natural even as you receive vast amounts of information concept emotional information about characters a sense of who they are a sense of the world and plot all this stuff has to go into you without you really noticing like you can be alert to it but you shouldn't feel um weighed down by it and so in a you know i stand between you and the chaos that is my own brain that's part <laughs> of the thing right so so um it was the it was the process of 
structure and creation the resolution of those different plot lines and all the different character threads and their emotions because you want as you're doing your overarching detective story each individual scene has an ebb and a flow as you're doing each individual sub narrative each of those has an ebb and a flow and each individual scene of that has an ebb and a flow how those waves interact with one another across the sub narratives between the sub narratives as a group and to the main book and between each individual sub narrative and the main book and between each individual sub narrative and the main book and the other sub narratives as a group you are resolving these things all the time right so it was hard it was just crazy hard it was just administratively difficult like like suddenly going from running a company with three employees to running a company with a hundred i don't know you know um uh it's about the mathematical multiplication of possibilities if this scene goes here then that means that the next scene has to be more upbeat or less discursive or more actiony or less actiony whatever so this scene feels like this that scene feels like that now if you change the scene order and you bring in another scene in the middle then does that still work or does that ebb and flow now not work and it feels jagged it's all kind of you have to fall effortlessly through this or at least as effortlessly as i can contrive but that doesn't mean that it's effortless to put together in fact very much the reverse so that was why it was hard the solutions i attempted for this turn out to be very stupid the first thing that i i mean i tried first of all i just tried to gun it through right you put one foot in front of the other trench warfare that works up to a point but after a while you, you just start to fry and you come down kind of you know with your eyes kind of staring looking as if you've been taking methamphetamine yeah i was gonna say for like to 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 try and sort of like just forced march through it with that level of awareness you must have felt like superman like hearing the screams of all the people he can't save around the world while trying to just keep going forward i was gonna say doing that thing where he turns the world backwards in time i mean just like yeah (laughs) um, so yeah absolutely so then i decided that okay uh i was gonna have to kind of i mean and, and this is my instinct anyway is to sort of not plan but acknowledge the plot lines and draw them out and whatever so i have a i have a whiteboard and what i usually do is i draw things on the whiteboard i draw flow diagrams and whatever um and um oh that's my doorbell never mind um and so i do that and um you can go uh, and answer it it's all right i don't want to answer it yeah Um, please do just go and i'll be right back make a note of where i am of course and we're back okay okay so there we go so you first of all you sort of you try the force march and that doesn't work and then you think okay um what i'll do is i'll keep a kind of running sketch on the whiteboard and i'll just do that and what i then do is i photograph the whiteboard so i can rub it off and write something else and i thought oh hang on i need that still so i printed it out so gradually i ended up with a serial killer nest of images um <laughs> hanging on bits of string and the whole book on sort of index cards and scraps of menu and whatever and bits of printed out text um hanging from the walls and ceiling on blue tack and so on um which turns out to not work because paper weighs something and eventually what happens is that the string breaks or that comes out of the blue tack it falls on the floor and 700 pages of plotting and madness and so on tumbles into an inextricable mess like the like the opposite of the big bang goes back to the center of the room and you've got nothing you know nothing and i've come to the conclusion that actually it's not that serial killers make those nests because they're mad it's that they tried to plot a novel and they went mad and became serial killers. <laughs> so, that, 
Um, so that doesn't work. Um, and then I realized, and this is actually the, the sort of almost the most important thing that I realized, um, that I had been trying to write from beginning to end on a process that was actually, I mean, although I wasn't trying to write from beginning to end exactly, because I was trying to do each narrative from the beginning to the end, but I wasn't trying, and then I was sort of meshing them together and whatever, and that was sort of holding me in stasis. I was like, oh no, hang on, no, you really don't have to do this in order. You can write the scenes that matter, and they dictate then the other scenes before. And you can go backwards from the scenes that matter and forwards from the scenes that matter. And you can make a decision about what those interactions need to feel like, need to look like, how those characters need to feel at the end, how they, you know, what needs to happen at the end, what needs to happen in the middle, and then you can fill in the blanks from there, so that the growth, that the story grows organically from the central scenes, from the spine, from the whatever, rather than trying to hold all that in your head and reach each point as a way station. Um, and and that's the sort of weird illusion that I think I'd been carrying around for quite a while that you needed to sort of hold the story entirely in your mind and proceed in a kind of orderly fashion from beginning to end. And in fact, it goes much better and works much more sensibly, particularly if you're meshing narratives like this. If you start by writing the scene that defines the whole thing, and then you write the scenes that depend from that, and then you're locked. They, things don't keep moving. I mean, you might change it if you kind of if you find something that doesn't work or you need to change it, whatever. But you've got the kind of you've got the stuff that will absolutely define everything. And it still wasn't easy, but it was much easier. Than, than, um, than sort of trying to march all the way through it. Emotionally speaking, it was a question of, I mean, the other thing that I do is I print out the text anyway that I think is definitive, not necessarily plot definitive, but definitive of characters and voices and so on. So Constantin, Constantin Kyriakos, um, we meet and he's confronted by a giant shark when he's, he's diving off Thessalonica and you immediately know who he is from his voice. He's brash, he's wealthy, and and yet underneath all this um, sort of chat, there is a very lonely, creative, thoughtful, emotionally wounded guy, um, and that's much more interesting than he would be if that wasn't the case. Um, so, you know, so and I had that section over the computer and I had the introduction of Nomon to remind me of this wry, sardonic character and I had the beginning of Miliki Neath's sort of discussion of herself and so on. All the characters had little post-it notes or paragraphs and so on. So I, I could look at them and know who they were and then I would know where I was in the story because of the detective arc and I would know where I was going because I'd written the key scenes and suddenly it seemed doable again. So that was that. And then there's the... I mean, the other thing about this, when you stop, when you come to a point where you can't go any further and you think, oh, God, this is a disaster. It's broken. I've forgotten how to do this. It was always crap, whatever. I think it's really important to trust yourself in both directions. That's to say, first of all, trust your original inception, inception of the idea. Look at it and go, yeah, this is still a good idea, right? I mean, it really is. I've gone wrong somewhere or, I've, you know, I've made a decision that locks it all up. The second thing to trust, though, and this is, I think, the thing that people fall down on a lot, because it's really hard, is to trust the instinct that says you can't do this. Take the message from the same skill that allows you to write the story in the first place, that you're getting it wrong and you need to back off 
and unpick because very often you you lock at page 204 and you can't get to page 300 and it's all tears and the reason for that is on like page 80 and it's not even very big um you know so that's sort of that was the thing that i sort of i carry around is that sense of you know it can all be okay again thank nick i just want to i don't don't want to provide too much of a gloss on that except to except to just co-sign it and say that i feel like i've learned a huge amount from hearing that and that's really 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 genuinely helpful and balanced thank you i think it's it just reminds me of there's like the comic there's the peanuts comic strip where charlie brown says oh my he's he's saying saying to linus oh my people think my dad doesn't know how to deal with problems but the other day there was a rattling in the car engine and uh, he turned the radio up and, it, and and it's and there is that kind of your first instinct as a writer sometimes when you get the first rumble of trouble is to turn the radio up and try and plow through it instead of like that's a re- that's such a revelatory point that you're making basically it's a sign that you've got good taste and your critical instincts are functional. Well done. You have self-awareness. Um, why not use that and trust yourself that you have the ability to um, to, imp- to act on that? Now, I tell you what, here's the other thing, though, because since you mentioned the Charlie Brown thing, um, the other thing about that is that depending on the story you're writing and the moment that the story you're in, you may just be able to turn the radio up. And it's very easy to sit there by the side of the road taking the tire pressure and doing the dipstick with the oil and hoping that the carburetor and so on and yeah actually there might be something wrong with the engine but does it matter because sometimes and it really depends on the book sometimes you can just roll the damn thing over the line and no one will ever notice the engine wasn't working (laughs) it's you you have to be that one i think you have to be really alert to whether to what kind of story it is you know the the because it can go wrong for you but if you read thrillers quite often they've got a gaping hole in them you know there's some moment where someone does something totally irredeemably stupid or totally out of character and it always drives me mad if i catch it but very often people don't catch it and even if they do they'll rationalize it away and it doesn't really matter if you're, you know, if you're explaining the nature of the universe, then sooner or later you're going to have to come up with the nature of the universe. But if you're, if you're telling a story where the focus is somewhere else, if, you know, I mean, and it's some of the great thrillers, some of the really amazing thrillers have a moment where you go, really, as I think about it, he probably wouldn't have been able to buy a pair of gloves at three quarters of a minute after three in the morning in a rural village in Shropshire. <laughs> yeah. Right, but you. Ne- but but the thing is, as it were, Agatha Christie just puts her head down and goes, "Ha ha!" And until you start unpicking it, you'll never notice. And since Poirot doesn't pick up on it, or you know, whatever, you don't either. And it doesn't spoil your enjoyment while you're reading it. It's only while you're eating some kind of like uh, some gooseberry trifle uh, a year later, and you go, "Oh, hang on." <laughs> Yeah, exactly. And and it's you know, and it's worth remembering that sometimes it doesn't matter. And it doesn't have to be. It's not only sort of, you know, uh, as you might say, pop writing that can do that. You know, you can be writing something that's incredibly deep and meaningful and never explain why person X doesn't respond to person Y's overtures of, of reconciliation. 
you know, and if they had nothing, none of this would ever have happened and da da da. But actually, a the audience will go, well, of course they didn't, you know, because that's just the kind of person they are. Or B, you know, they'll just accept that sometimes you don't get answers. There's even a novel which is essentially about this, um, a detective novel, in fact, um, written by Friedrich Dürrenmatt, The Pledge. And Dürrenmatt wrote, wrote this book about the great detective, Matai uh, of the Last Resort. Um, when, you can't, when, you, when you really need to, to find the bad guy, you call Matai, and Matai comes in and he imposes order on the chaos of crime and he comes in and they bring him in for this case where this guy is murdering he's a serial killer is, is killing uh, i think you know, he's abducting and killing children across switzerland and um and uh, he works out from from the information he works out the route the guy is driving in his car and he puts himself in a in a petrol station at the point where he knows the car will be running low on petrol and he waits because he knows what you know the traits the guy will have and he'll be able to recognize him by the car by the combination of clothes and car and size and whatever and he never comes and when you meet the detective he's broken and just working as a pump attendant day in day out kind of drunk and desperately waiting for this serial killer to show up to prove that he was right and i mean so spoiler alert tune out if you want to read the book what eventually turns out to be the case is that he was right, but the guy died in a car accident the day before Matai took the job in the petrol station. So he was right, but the universe just intervened, and chance is more powerful than logic, is the kind of, you know, or at least plays a role that you must acknowledge in logic. Um, you know, so you can't you can't even in a in a novel you can't control all the variables it'll turn out that you accidentally think that you know you accidentally imply that martinique is off the coast of africa or whatever and people will notice and you know maybe for 10 seconds they'll think you're an idiot and then they'll pass by or alternatively they'll just never notice you know and you you know it's just anything um you know there are flaws and sometimes they're deep flaws sometimes they're shallow and I think all writers get this. Like you get a note from somebody saying, I loved your book, but actually Boxwell Street is an NW7. And you're just like, is it? Damn. And you go there and you're like, I would have sworn it wasn't, but it is. You know, but it doesn't actually matter. And it, with plotting, you know, it can get into the state where you're fretting, you've got the car by the side of the road and you're trying to pull out all the stuff. But actually, nobody will care if you just drive it over the line. And that's worth knowing too. Nick, thank you so, so much for generously giving your time and just being... I don't, I don't want to be too obsequious because then it sort of like slightly mars the whole thing with you having to either accept my thing or deflect it in some way that, that, that forcing you into kind of like these cowed retractions. But um, genuinely, just r thank you. I know it's going to be so useful to so many people and it's just a real joy to talk with you about your books and just to talk with a writer who is so full of obvious enthusiasm and passion and love for the craft oh well i mean it's such a pleasure anytime uh and um everybody listening i'm gonna put um links to uh nick's books in the show notes and on my website tim claire poet um top of which will be uh nomon so if you want to grab a copy for yourself you can click those or of course go to your local bricks and morton bookshop and uh, order them in um and i hope everybody listening uh you have a wonderful week of writing